Um, all right. Yeah. Part four now. Part four. Uh, so I started our talk at the beginning of the last hour talking about the word grace. And I did as much as I wanted to at that point, but the idea of grace is definitely not going to come back into play in this part of the talk. Um, we'll see kind of why in a minute. But to start this section, I want to say this. A lot of what I have said already is something that a Islamic, an Islamic person would hear and go, yeah. <laughs> uh, the idea that God wants your whole heart, they use the word Islam, submit, submit to God. Um, Muhammad was somebody that was deeply bothered by what he saw as people who talked about religion but didn't live it out. He saw Christianity as um, having been kind of watered down by fake people. And if you heard my church history class, you know, I kind of agree uh, where he went with it. I don't. But the idea that God is offering us a life that requires some effort on us is actually kind of similar to some other world religions. Um, and what's hard about that is some of you, depending on your traditions, and this might be the, 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 the part of this class that is the most helpful, uh, you might hear some of this and there might be some tension yeah, they definitely have, I've taught this a number of times, and this has come up a lot, whereby it's like, wait a minute, the gospel is supposed to be like good news, that, that God has done something apart from my effort, that I, I, I don't have to earn it or work for it. And isn't the problem that I can't do all this, but Jesus did it for me. And what I want to, what I always want to say to that is, at its core, yes, I'm with you. What I want to do in Rise to Life is kind of... <laughs> work through some of that and get to the heart of it. I absolutely believe that at the heart of Christianity is a God who pursued me and loved me while I was still a sinner. And he did something for me that I didn't earn and I don't deserve. But then I also believe that to experience the life he wants for me does require something from me. There is something involved in me. But then <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but I suck. <laughs> Like I, if, if my hope for life is working harder, <laughs> maybe, uh, like maybe those people that are more like, you know, the type A, like my wife gets up at 5 a.m. and exercises, maybe she'll experience salvation. But I, I don't, if, if it's up to me to work harder and to do better, is that even really good news? Uh, because sure, we can wake up to the reality that God wants something different and better for us. But to actually do it, to do the things I need to do to rise to life, if it's all about working harder, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I just, I, I would have always been. And that's why I, I, it's important. When I first did this class, I wish it could have just been a three-hour class because I always had this fear that people would come week one and then not come back week two and miss, like, because I had to put things in order. But this part of the class is so important for us to understand Christianity. Because the reality is what, makes this message so much more amazing the more you unpack it, is that on the one hand, yes, the Bible message is communicating that we need to do better. It just is, right? It is. We have to accept that. But what's beautiful about the scriptures and the message of Jesus is that he didn't just show up and yell at us and say, start doing better. Come on, knock it off, right? He didn't just show up yelling and demanding things telling us to suck it up and stop being bad. 
the gospel story of Jesus comes to us with an even more amazing reality when we realize that he offers us both an opportunity for a new life and that he wants to empower us to actually live it. Look at how Peter says it this way. Peter says, his divine power has given you everything you need through a godly life. Now, if you remember just about 10 minutes ago, we read a verse in Timothy where Paul talked about how the scriptures teach and train in order to come about and give righteousness, right? And here's Peter. It's almost like he's saying something different in a sense. He's like, yeah, that righteousness, that life you're looking for, his divine power has given you everything you need. The knowledge of God, the life, the new mind, all this stuff has started with his divine power. It's he who gives us the strength to do what he calls us to do. And so this entire next section, I want to focus on this idea that the idea of rising to life, of living out salvation, of, of becoming, transforming into the people that we're called to be, requires a new priority, requires a renewed mind. But at its core, and this is so amazing, it's ultimately not about willpower. It's actually about his power that wants to work inside of us. Christianity is not self-help. It's not a book you pick up on Amazon that tells you how to fix all your problems yourself. To be honest, there are many things that the Quran tells you to do that you should actually do. It's got some good insights in it. A lot of religions tell you to be better. If Christianity was just another religion telling you to be better, great. I mean, I guess the fact that, you know, in Jesus we're reconciled back to God is cool. But in terms of actually living a better life, the life we're called to, if it's just working harder, if it's just having some more information, I mean, the Greeks believed that. The Greeks believed you just needed like the secret insight, the, the special knowledge, and then you could have the eudaimonia, the good life. But it's like, well, does actually having more information really change me? And the Christian message would say, well, Actually, no, because the Christian message is rooted in the Jewish message, and the Jewish message is the entire story of those people. So in order to understand how this plays out, we need to start by examining the problem, just like we did the first week. And it's essentially what I just said, this idea that you and I all recognize that part of the human experiment, part of the human existence, is that we are constantly faced with things that our brain tells us we should do that we just don't want to do. Like, we feel this all the time, but especially trying to live the quote-unquote right way, righteousness, godliness. Oh, read my Bible. Okay, good, sure, okay, right? We, we understand this. We know intuitively in our hearts because it's our lives that there's a difference between knowing something's right and wanting to do it. It's one of the great tensions of being broken human beings. I can actually be given truth can tell me something, it's right, but my sinful, broken humanity, this word that, that the Apostle Paul and other New Testament authors uh, call, we translate as flesh. Like, and I think it's important just to pause briefly. Some people think like what Paul and others were saying, we talked about the sinful flesh was that matter or physical things are sinful and broken. It's not what he was saying. That led us down a whole different stream of thought that it's gone, oh, the world and physical things are bad, spirit is good. That's not what he was saying. He wasn't saying, like, my body is bad. Flesh referred more to this thing inside of me that wants to do things that are unhealthy for me. 
like the thing that wants to make bad choices, even when my brain, like that's like the, the, in Romans, there's like this war between I know it, but I don't do it. And I do it, but I don't want to do it and all this kind of stuff. Our minds can tell us something's right, but this thing in me just doesn't want to do it. And it's especially true with obeying God. We can see so clearly this in the entire Old Testament story of the Jewish people. For the Jewish people were given the law, the Torah, through Moses. And, and so you open up your Old Testament, you start all the way at the beginning of Exodus when God pulls out these slaves from Egypt and says, I'm going to make you into a nation of people and I'm going to be your God. And he says, I'm going to give you the way. Torah means like direction, point this way. And it's going to guide and lead you. And I want you to obey it. And when you do, he said, you are going to be blessed and prosperous. The whole world will look to you and be like, why is your life so much better? And they will say, you'll say, because we serve Yahweh, the one true God, and nations will flock to you and want to follow me as well. The Jewish people were almost, and I don't, don't want to misuse this word, but almost kind of like an experiment, but not in the sense of like, will it work? But more like, it was like, here's how God is going to draw the world back to himself. He's going to have these people do what he says to do, live the life, obey him, trust him and obey him, make him a priority, right? All the things are about, and they will be blessed from it because they'll become the kind of people they're created to be. And everyone around them will be like, wow, your life is so much better. You're shining like stars in the night sky, as Daniel said. We want to know your God. That was how it was supposed to play out. So God gave them the law, the Torah, through Moses. And so in your, old, in your Bible, in the Old Testament, you have the first five books of the Pentateuch, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And that is the law. It's the, it's the things that were written down for people to obey. And the people heard this and accepted it. God said, I'm giving you this law. If you obey it, it'll go well for you. You'll be blessed. Do you want this agreement? They said, yes, we do. We pledge our allegiance to you, God. They swore a covenant to live according to his law. And yet, it didn't work out that way. Again, if you don't know that, read your Bible. <laughs> Open your Old Testament and read it. Because there was a huge problem. And the problem with the Jewish people was not ignorance. The problem with the Jewish people was not that they didn't know what God wanted. They would write it on their door frames. They would carry it around in little pockets on their clothes. Like they would teach it to each other. They would raise their kids in it. They talk about it all the time. The problem was not ignorance. They knew the law. The prophet Jeremiah told them what the problem was. He said, the problem is that the heart is deceitful of all things, Right? They had a heart problem. That, that even though they were given what God wanted them to do, this thing inside in the heart, and actually in Hebrew, that's bowels. Like, uh, like this thing, like this emotion, this place, like this I feel, I want this. That's, that's corrupt. We today say heart. It represents desire, what you want, right? And far too often, what we want isn't what's best for us and isn't what we might even know is true. So we have these people who had the Torah, and they'd made an agreement. And God said, if you obey me and do this, you will have better lives. And then fast forward, they're all a mess. Everything's terrible. It's all broken. Like, oh, I suck. God isn't faithful. And some of the prophets are like, God isn't faithful? You didn't do what you're supposed to do. Oh, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> that just summarized the Old Testament. Um, but in this moment, when everything is falling apart and they're losing their land, part of the promise, if you obey me, you keep the land, now they're losing their land. 
God sent prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and said, hey, listen, this isn't working. And, and I'm, I'm putting this in my own words. The reason it's not working is not because I didn't give you the law. It's not, the problem isn't that you don't know things. The reason this isn't working is because you guys have hearts that are just, right? You agree that true life is found in obeying God, but then the rubber met the road and you actually didn't want to do it. You knew you were supposed to, but you didn't because you had a heart problem. You knew you'd be happier and healthier if you exercised, but you just didn't want to, right? So now you're living with the consequences. This thing is our heart is constantly leading us. Our desires, our wants are part of our brokenness. This whole thing, again, of our desires are based on what our brains think we want. Well, it looks good. I want that. I want that. We don't even realize what is and isn't good for us. We have a heart problem. So what's the answer? Do we just keep beating our heads against the wall and yo-yo dieting and all this different stuff and all just, I'll read my Bible every day for a week. And then like four days later, like, oh, oh crap, I suck again. Um, this is like the story of the Old Testament, right? But these same prophets like Jeremiah who said this kind of stuff also said something else. And I, I want to point to a guy named Ezekiel who, who kind of lived around the same time. And Ezekiel and Jeremiah and others were looking ahead. They were looking to what God was going to do kind of looking at the Jews that this didn't work, but God isn't done. God still wants to have a people on the earth who thrive because they're living the lives he created them for and everyone around will see it and want it. God has not given up on that. But he's, it's like recognizing that this wasn't enough. Giving them the law wasn't enough. So here's what we're gonna do. A time is coming when God is gonna do something different. Instead of just telling you and writing the law down, he says this, I'm gonna give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. No longer just telling you what to do, not just reminding you that your life would be better if you would obey, but actually, I'm gonna change you from the inside. I'm gonna change your desires. I'm gonna change the thing that drives you altering something inside of us. And, and I was just tying into the last hour, I would say this, a new heart will lead to new priorities. I can stand here and tell you, make God the first part of your life. And you'd be like, that seems like a good idea. And then you walk out and you're like, eh, right? <laughs> and the rubber meets the road, you're like, oh, oh, I got bills due. Oh, God, eh. oh, I got, I'd rather do this thing over here. The reality is what we need is a new heart. We need something inside that's different. We call to be transformed by changing our mind and our thinking and our lives, but it's got to start inside. Our actions and our broken behavior were always a symptom. We're always a symptom. Now, I'm not someone that completely separates heart and mind. I'm just, these are words that try to help us make sense of things. Ultimately, I think even our heart is a problem with our mind. When Adam and Eve, you know, took that apple, it was both of these things working together. I want something. My brain is also telling me it's better for me. They work together, but at our core, like it's, something's got to change inside of you. Um, but look how Ezekiel finishes his statement. So he says this, he says, give you a new, a new heart, put a new spirit in you, move your heart of stone. Then he says this, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees. Be careful to keep my laws. What a... Interesting statement that is. Uh, I, I, I was like, 
let that sink in for a moment. He didn't, like, I will put my spirit in you. And I won't just tell you to do things. Knock it off. Stop it. <laughs> I will move you. In, in Hebrew, this move you is like, I'm coming with you. Like we're do, I'm, Let's go. We're <laughs> like grabbing your hand. We're going together. I will move you to follow my decrees. I'll put my spirit in you. Not just tell you our hearts are damaged, to come and live inside us and serve as a sort of, I, I kind of use a, like this sort of divine pacemaker, right? Coming alongside our broken hearts and beating with us. Monitoring, guiding, changing us from the inside. And we see this happen with Jesus. We fast forward a few hundred years and, and Jesus He's coming and beginning this whole restoration process. And of course, all of, her, all of his followers are excited and they're like, this is it. The king is here. I mean, it's gonna be all on from here. We're gonna, we're gonna crown him. We're gonna kick out the Romans. We're gonna establish a kingdom. We're gonna make Israel great again and everything's gonna be wonderful. And Jesus looks at them and says, actually guys, I'm leaving. Like, what? <laughs> what do you mean you're leaving? Where are you going? <laughs> Yeah, I'm leaving. You can't leave, Jesus. What are you talking about? You can't leave. But it was always his plan to leave. It was always his plan to leave. And he said, when I leave, I'm going to send another. And, and they use this word parakletos, which means one who comes along and serves you, para, like, you know, a paramedic, uh, someone, a kletos, someone who's serving you or leading or guiding you. We translate that as advocate, but we also translate this quite often just as the Holy Spirit. I'll ask the Father and he will give you the paracletos, the Holy Spirit, to help you and be with you forever. Which, again, so we're talking about the Holy Spirit here. Like, Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave and send you the Holy Spirit. As you can just imagine the people in the moment hearing this being like, what? <laughs> like, wait, What? Hold on, hold on. You like, you you came here. You came in your. You came to be king. Why would you, spirit? No, you're here. And shortly after Jesus leaves, we actually see this happen. He tells them, like at the beginning of Acts, he's like, "I'm going to go now. I want you to go and pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you." In the book of Acts, it says they're praying and the Spirit comes upon them. And from there on, in Acts chapter two, that's when Christianity starts. And I, I want to make a really bold statement here. Christianity did not begin when Jesus died on the cross. Christianity did not begin when Jesus walked out of the tomb. It began when the Holy Spirit fell on human beings. That's when the church started. That's when everything started. Before that moment, it was just a small little group of Jesus followers who were like, what is this all about? And then the Spirit came and was like, oh, this is what it's about. And for the next 2,000 years, it was the Holy Spirit moving in human beings that changed the world and changed lives. The Holy Spirit is at the center of Christianity. The Holy Spirit is God. We're talking about God here. And so the Spirit comes and empowers them to live the life that they're called to, to become the people of the Spirit, living with the Spirit. It's the revival of the Spirit, the book of Acts, where the people are revealed. This was always the plan. This was always the plan. Like, and I, I, I think sometimes... I, I don't know why this is. I, I, I really, honestly, I don't know why this is. Christianity talks a lot about Jesus for good reason. 
but they don't spend a lot of time talking about the Spirit of God. And it's interesting because in many ways, this is what it was all pointing to. The whole thing was pointing to the Spirit of God coming and giving us new hearts because this is actually what makes us Christian. And I don't have time to prove that, but I guarantee it's true if you read the letters of Paul. Again and again, whenever he talked about whether someone was a Christian, he didn't say like, do they vote this way or talk this way? No, it was like, do they have the spirit? When he was arguing with Jewish people, and they're like, well, they haven't been circumcised. Like, yeah, but they have the spirit. I'm like, oh crap, you're right. Okay, if they have the spirit, what makes you a Christian is receiving the spirit. That's the, he calls it the seal, like someone, a ring putting like, yep, absolutely. The way that you know you're in, you're part of it is you've received the spirit of God. Paul's like, this is what it's all about because the spirit indwelling us is what is gonna bring about the real change that we need. It's a different way to live in relationship and obedience to God, where he's starting to now say, not just do this, but he's gonna live inside of us and change us from the inside. I wanna do a little fun with scripture here. Uh, Here's a great verse, and I'll I'll explain this in a minute. In Romans, Paul says that the love of for God has been poured into our hearts. We're like, we're overflowing through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. And uh, if you're wondering what's going on here, it's because the Greek language can be kind of confusing. Um, Because if you read this in Greek, it can actually mean either one. It can mean the love of God or love for God. And you're like, what's the difference? Well, let me explain. Um, You can read this verse as like God's love, which is just so warm and fuzzy, is being poured into our hearts. And I just feel that he loves me and I feel good. And in some ways, okay, there's true. Okay. But I actually don't think that's how that verse is supposed to be translated. There's a little big debate among scholars, and, and this is what I believe this is true. I think Paul is saying, love for God has been poured into my heart. Why? Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. What is the most important thing I can do? Worship God and make him your first priority. What is the hardest, worst thing it is for me to do? Love God and make him my first priority. What do I need? I need the spirit of God to fill my heart with love for him because I can't do it myself. I think what Paul is getting at here before he goes into chapters six and seven and talks about this war inside of us, he's saying the Holy Spirit wants to fill your heart with the very thing that you need to find the life you're created for. This part of you that doesn't want to love God, doesn't want to be committed. That's just hard. The spirit is actually giving us that the divine power of God giving us everything we need for life and godliness. Where does godliness come from? It comes from loving God. When I choose to love God and make him first and foremost, the results are a different kind of life. But the problem is (laughs) I don't wanna choose that. So God gives us his Holy Spirit and changes us from within. Because remember again, again, I'll say this again and again and again, obedience, behavior matters. Christianity is not trying to do away with any concept that your life matters. It all matters. The issue is not that obedience doesn't matter. The issue is that we don't want to obey. And God wants to do something in us so that we will obey. Because when we obey, we discover a better life. So like a father who's looking at his kids who just won't trust him and do what's better, he's like, okay, how can I get these kids to trust me and do this because it's better for them? He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change their own hearts to want to do it. It was always and still is God's intent for his people to express his image 
through their behavior. How you live matters. It has consequences, good and bad. He gave the Jews the law so they would act and live differently. The purpose of the law was to change how they lived. But because of our damaged hearts, we didn't want to. And it often feels we're powerless to obey, and thus we become lawbreakers. But the beauty of this whole story is that the Spirit empowers me to obey. And when I obey, I fulfill what the law was always aiming at. What did the law do this? What was it about? God trying to give me something better. And now the Spirit is empowering me to do it. And I know these words like law and obedience, they can be very heavy. We've got to sift them through a father who loves us and realize now that he is empowering me to live out the life he's calling me to. It's not greater willpower forcing myself to the right thing. It's embracing what God is already doing in me. Paul says it this way in his letter to the Galatians. Oh, wait, would I skip that? Um, oh, here it is. Um, in his letter to Romans, and this is my second time quoting the message. Yay, I'm okay with the message, by the way. Um, he says it this way. The law, was a, it was like a Band-Aid. This is a very English translation. Um, essentially, it's like there was a problem, and the law was like, all right, can you stop it from bleeding? It didn't actually fix anything. It just told you you had a problem, right? It was, the law was like a doctor being like, uh, you, you got a problem. But what the law asked for but couldn't deliver is now accomplished, and I love this statement. Instead of redoubling our own efforts... Working harder. Embracing what the Spirit is doing in us. Here's the medicine. Let it work in you. The Holy Spirit wants to work in you. The Holy Spirit wants to empower you. The Holy Spirit wants to do something in your life that you can't do for yourself. When I walk in the Spirit or live by the Spirit, He does something in me. And in doing so, I'm fulfilling the purpose of the law. And, and I want you to see how this ties together. And maybe you'll feel familiar with some of these statements. When I live by the Spirit of God in me, when I let Him begin to change me from the inside, the result is that my actions and my behavior changes. The things that I do change because what's going on inside of me is changing. He's changing my wants and my thinking, all these things, and different things are happening in my life. What does a life look like living that way. Paul actually gives us an answer. He said, a tree that is just broken and dying is really gross, but a tree living this way, what comes out of it, uh, sorry, uh, this one. He says there's fruit from that tree. Fruit from a tree that's grounded in the spirit of God. Shows love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, or, in, uh, you know, when he says against this, there's no law. In the Greek, he's kind of saying these things don't come from the law. The law doesn't bring about these kind of things because we're still broken inside. The spirit is actually changing us and remaking us in different kinds of people. Now, here's what I would say. This list right here, if you go back to last week, remember when Paul gave another list? He, he, you know, even though they knew God, they rejected God. And therefore, this is what came. Basically, it was the opposite list, wasn't it? Romans 1 gives a very different list of human beings living on their own, trying to do their own thing, ignoring God. It's not love, it's anger and vengeance and violence and anxiety. There's no peace, there's no patience, they're not kind to each other. They're unfaithful, they're mean, 
They do whatever they want to do. There's no self-control. He's saying the Spirit is bringing about a different kind of life in you. Life being led by the Spirit of God with Him changing our hearts. And I would just say this, and this doesn't say this, I'm saying this, but I think I can back it up. Guys, these words that you see here, these adjectives, describe God. God is all of these things. Which means, a little bit of logic here, these things were always supposed to define a human being. This is what a human being was always supposed to look like. When God made you and created you, he created a being who had joy, peace, patience, kindness. The reason that we don't have these things is because of our sin and our rejection of God. And now he's calling us back to these things. But the problem is simply telling me to have joy Oh, thanks. Okay, have joy, Pete. <laughs> no, 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 let me empower you. Let me give it to you. Let me walk with you and bring about these things in your life. He's empowering us. And in doing so, we rise to life. We, we begin to experience new life. Um, we said salvation is about transformation. But again, every religion tells us we're broken and need to change. Only Jesus helps us do it. Which, let me bring you back again. The Holy Spirit, God, giving you the Spirit, giving you himself, is a gift. A gift that the New Testament uses the word gift for. Again and again in the New Testament, when God uses, when the Bible uses the word grace, so often, more more often than not, it's specifically referencing the gift, the grace of the Spirit of God moving in you. That is the gift. Yes, Jesus offers a gift of his his death and his sacrifice to you. But I want to show you how this ties together. This is so important. Because um, there's a a problem that we have to address, okay? There's a problem here. A barrier, yet again, brings us back to Jesus. Remember I said he brings an effort not our own, uh, this idea of like he, he offers us something that we can't do on our own. He, he gives us something. This grace is only possible through Jesus. So going back last week, like why Jesus? And I gave you those three things. But now I'm giving you a fourth thing. And I would argue that this fourth thing might be the most important one. And it's, odd, it's oddly neglected a lot. Um, I want to go back again to the beginning, Genesis. This is before like, Right, right when all this stuff has happened. So the Adam and Eve have just sinned, and now it says this. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden, the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You might have heard this story. They're embarrassed. They're saying, um, I don't actually want to talk about this story. I just want to talk about one specific interesting thing about that verse. Something incredible. I don't know for sure if this is meant metaphorically. Did this literally happen or is this an image? I'm not really sure. People disagree. Whether it's literal though or metaphorical, there's still something here that should stick out to us. God was walking with the people and they hid from them. God was in some way with them, right? God was with, they were together in a relationship. And even if this story is meant to be more metaphorical, which, you know, again, disagree, whatever, whatever, I don't know. It represents something about our purpose. It represents something about who we are as people. And so last week, you know, image bearers, 
I didn't even get to it, but I really want to get to it right now. God always intended to walk with us. God walked with humans before there was the problem with sin, right? (laughs) Of course, like all these great blessings to us, we went and screwed it up. And when, when humans disobeyed God and rejected him and rebelled against him, there were these things they called curses, which are, you could you actually go to the word like consequences. Bad things came out of it. But one of the worst things that came out of this was the fact that, yeah, okay, he talks about like family and child labor and work, got all, your lives are gonna get harder. They lost this. They lost this. Humans lost this. God was with his people. And, and I, I don't want to overstate this, but I don't know if I can overstate this. It's not just like, oh, that would have been nice. I think it's much deeper than that. This represents something about what it means to be a human being. So what that tells me, and I'm, I'm just trying to put the pieces together, is that can you actually define a human being apart from the presence of God? Or were human beings created to actually carry God's presence. I said it this way. I think that our hearts were made to beat with him. He took dust, it says, and he breathed. That word breath, is we translate the same word. Breath and spirit and wind are all the same word, ruach in Hebrew. He breathed himself into us. That is our, like, human beings were created to carry God's presence. You were made for it. And I, I, again, I, I don't want to, like, like, this is like sink in. Part of being human, whatever that means, includes God's presence in your life. So what happens when you lose God's presence in your life? What does it mean to be a human without God? Is it possible that, you know, all this that we talk about this week, all is the greatest disaster that has come upon us as people is that there's something inherent to our humanity that is gone when we walked away from God. That the greatest disaster from the Garden of Eden wasn't the loss of some beautiful, pretty view and trees, but it was the loss of God himself living in and with us. And in losing that core part of our humanity, I'm now something less than I'm supposed to be. No wonder we're malfunctioning. No wonder we're falling apart. We didn't just reject God's truth up here. We rejected his presence in our lives. I was never made to live without him. I was never made to try to do this thing without his spirit inside of me. And the whole history of humanity trying to do it without him has been nothing short of a train wreck. But God wasn't content to leave it that way. So he calls this guy Moses. He doesn't, remember, he doesn't just give Moses the law. Go back and read Exodus. He doesn't just say, all right, I'm gonna give you a list of stuff to do. No, no, he says, I'm gonna give you a list of stuff to do. And then I am coming. He tells them, I want want you to build this thing. He called it a tabernacle, a tent, like a, a mobile temple they could set up in the desert and do everything perfectly. And I am going to come back and be with you. And so they do, they follow all these rules and regulations, exactly how we, they build this beautiful thing, this tent out in the desert. And then we read this in Exodus 40. Moses finishes the work. A cloud covered the tent and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. 
for the first time is since all the way back from original sin, God has now come back to his people, excuse me, in a tent, but God is now with them. And this would eventually turn into a physical building. They'd build it out of bricks with Solomon and David and they'd call it the temple and God came to the people. Now, just to be clear, this wasn't quite like the garden. God's not walking hand in hand with them. He's in, there's like this one place in Jerusalem where the presence of God has now come. Um, but hey, that's something. God has returned to his people in some way. Okay, so he's kind of back maybe. However, and this is, uh, ooh, here we go, here we go. You guys, you guys with me? Okay. For God to continue to dwell with his people. And I, I'm just going to skip over because I don't have time. I can't, maybe I can't, like, Explain the why behind this is difficult. So I'm not going to explain the why. I'm just going to explain this is what I see in the Bible. God communicates to the Jewish people that whatever existed before this rebellion, this sin that allowed God to just walk with people has been marred and fractured. And in this moment, the best you're going to get is I'm going to be in this temple. You can come talk to me. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be here. That's the best you're going to get, basically. But... Even that, for even me to stay in this one little place, there's going to be some rules. And they started using words that are very weird and foreign to us. Words like holy and clean and pure. Um, They had to purify the temple. They They couldn't do anything that was unclean, couldn't be near it. And we look back on that stuff and we're kind of like, what is all that weirdness about? And I wish I could just do a whole thing on just the Old Testament. Maybe I will. I'll do a podcast on it. Um, but in the book of Leviticus, which was the Levi priests, there's all these rules about how to keep the temple clean and pure and how anything that's unclean or impure shouldn't go near it. Now, let me just say this real quick. Clean and unclean don't mean sinful or not sinful. They don't mean good and bad. Um, something that's pure, unpure, like an unpure thing wasn't like a bad thing, like, ooh, evil. It just was something that wasn't allowed near God's presence for whatever reason. Um, so all that being said, how did they keep the temple clean? How did they keep it pure? What did they do in order to like maintain this space for God's presence to exist? Well, they had a very specific thing they had to do and they were called sacrifices. They would literally kill animals and they would sprinkle blood on the altar of this place that God's presence was, which we hear and we're like, what the? What the crap right now? What's going on here? Now, I want to give a few thoughts on this because it's important. <clears throat> the word forgiveness often get, comes into play here and it can cause us some trouble. And I, I want to sort of work through it the best I can for a few minutes. It's actually a bit of a misconception to think that they were doing this for forgiveness. This wasn't about forgiveness. Like, I have wronged you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That wasn't what this was about. It's connected to it. It's in the same zip code, but it's not quite the same thing. Rather, the specific word that they would use was atonement. That's an English word. Um, In Hebrew, the word that we translate as atone um, means something like, there's kind of two meanings. One meaning can be to separate, to to like pull two things apart from each other, like get it away from me. Atonement could also be used as like cleaning or washing. Um, So the idea here, when they talked about atonement in the temple or the people, is that there's something, 
there's some kind of virus or something bad, dirty, and we need to like keep it out, keep it away, keep it clean. One day a year, they had a day of atonement where the high priest would have this ceremony where they'd take a, 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 an animal and he would like symbolically put all the sin of all the people on this animal. And they didn't kill it. They sent it away into the wilderness. Like get the, get the sin away from us. Get this brokenness that ruins us out of our camp. And in a similar way, they would offer these sacrifices of atonement in the temple to sort of like keep the brokenness away. Maybe, again, people argue that God is, is perfect and holy and couldn't be around it. Maybe it's symbolic and God wanted them to see like, you know, the life is in the blood and there's, there's a lot of, I can't get into theology, but we just know this is what they did on a regular basis. Or if anybody did anything that made the temple impure, they would offer a sacrifice. A lot of times sacrifices were also just celebrations, but in this context, there was a space, a place called the temple that God's presence dwelt with his people. And the sacrifices, the atonement sacrifices, kept that space disinfected. I don't know, I don't know, that's a weird word. They would never use that word, but maybe that's something that our minds can get around. Um, they, they were offered for actions that made the temple or the workers in the temple unholy or unclean. When they did these things, there was a reason they were doing these things. The reason was not, God, forgive us. The reason was, God, stay with us, right? So sacrifices maintained relationship. The goal here, the purpose, everything that's happening here is, God, please stay with us. It's just in this small little building here in one location, but it's the best we've got. Please stay with us. What do we need to do, right? We'll do all these little things. We'll sacrifice the animals. We'll keep the space holy and clean so your presence stays in this building and some of us can come to it and people will know God's over there. Cool, great, right? But look, that's all well and good, but that's not the Garden of Eden. That's not human beings thriving with God's presence in their lives. It's just kind of a shadow. It's just kind of like, eh, it's a little bit, but okay. So how about this one? God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, the shedding of his blood. Why did God offer Christ as a sacrifice of atonement? Well, so he could forgive us. Well, actually he could have forgiven me before this happened. Uh, David asked for forgiveness and God gave it to him. If it was just forgiveness, we're missing the point. There's something deeper than forgiveness. Forgiveness is sort of, again, the zip code, but it's deeper than that. Christ was the sacrifice of atonement. What is atonement? It's, it's maintaining the relationship, right? It's like, I want you to stay here. Don't leave. What do I need to do? To the shedding of his own blood. And again, Oh, Jesus died on a cross so God could forgive me. Well, yeah, but whoa, whoa, hold on. We're missing something bigger, something grander here. It wasn't just, and again, why do we say those things? It's like, oh, he died so I, I can be forgiven so I don't go to hell. When you paint things in those terms, those are the answers you come up with. But when you step back and say, the point isn't just going somewhere. The point is, who are we? And what are we created to be? And what's our relationship with God supposed to be like? Your relationship with God is not the way it was supposed to be. Something is wrong and Christ came to fix it and restore it. He came to fix and restore you and your humanity. And part 
of your humanity is that you were created to carry God's presence. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Think about this for a second, guys. <laughs> when Jesus said, I'm gonna send the spirit, the, technically the spirit was already in a building in the same town he was living in. What did he mean? Well, the Spirit's already in the temple. We, we walk by the temple every day. We see it, the Holy of Holies, the Spirit's in there. The Bible says that when Jesus gave up his spirit and died on the cross, the first thing that happened, it says, is there was this, this huge like curtain that separated the presence of God from everybody else. It ripped in half when an earthquake happened. Why did it rip in half? From that moment on, from the moment of Christ's death, when he became a sacrifice of atonement, the curtain ripped in half because we didn't need a temple anymore. We didn't need a holy of holies anymore. We didn't need a special little building in Jerusalem that you could go and hopefully glimpse God. You have become the temple of the Holy Spirit because Christ has atoned you. His blood makes you a place that can carry God's presence once again. So yes, forgiveness is part of it. It's connected to it. But the bigger idea is that what the cross does is it prepares you for his presence because you were made for his presence. And your sin and your rebellion pushed him away and you lost one of the core things about what it meant to be human. No wonder we're such a mess. No wonder we don't want to do the right things. No wonder our brains are so screwed up. Because you were created to be a temple of God and you've been empty your whole life. But now, because of what Jesus has done, his blood has now made you a place where God can dwell again. Makes you and I wholly capable of holding this great, amazing gift that Paul talks about. Now, God permanently once again dwells in you. And that's not a new thing. God dwelling with humans is not a new thing. It's a renewed thing. It's what we were made for. And it is the gift of God. So when someone says, what is grace? What is the gift of God? The answer is simple. It's himself. The greatest gift of God is him giving you himself. And in doing so, he's remaking us. He's restoring us from the inside out. But again, I'll come back to it. It's only through Jesus. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, the King, the Christ, for the forgiveness and the atonement of your sin. He's going to take it away. And that's kind of the idea of like, he's, he's taking this brokenness away, cleansing, cleaning, and now you will receive the grace, the gift of the Spirit. I cannot have a restored relationship with God without Jesus. He's the one who does it. And so if you felt I was a little light on that last week, it's because I was coming to this. When I say that he ends the hostility, it's not just like, okay, we're not fighting anymore. It's we're going to full, like complete and utter reunification of what we were always meant to be. God is now dwelling in us. He's living in us. He's breathing in us. And it's this idea that leads to this idea. That we don't rise to life by just working harder. We rise to life by having our lives restored with our relationship with God because of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is now living and dwelling in us and bringing about change. And that is the core message of Christianity. Like 
not just like everything, but like what is happening here is God is completely restoring. Not just tinkering with you. He's remaking you into what you were made to be, a carrier of his presence, reflecting his image, living the life he's called you to as he lives through you. And so Paul says this to us in the book of Galatians. He says, therefore, keep in step with the spirit. Since we live by the spirit, keep in step with the spirit. And I would say like what we're getting at here, we, all these things, they kind of land in the same place. Like this idea of following Jesus of being a disciple of Jesus happens as we keep in step with the spirit. Again, I know that can be confusing. It's like spirit, Jesus, God. Well, we believe that there is one God in three persons. The spirit is God. When I follow the spirit, I'm, I'm following Jesus. Like right, they're all connected. A disciple of Jesus is one who's led by the spirit who's in me. And so this is, Part of the new life I'm called to live is keeping in step with the Spirit. Jesus kind of said it his own way. He said this. Um, he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remain in me. Remember that fruit that we're looking for, the fruit of the Spirit? Remain in, let, let, let him, let his Spirit bring about the fruit in our lives. Stay in this state of, of dependence on him, of closeness with him. Now, bringing this kind of full circle, you might say to yourself, okay, so what does it mean to remain in Jesus? What does that look like in practice? Uh, short answer is, this is a high-level flyover class, and I could do a whole class on that question. But I will say, like, part of remaining in Jesus is, is what spending time with right? I, I The whole thing about getting in the Word, sometimes the beautiful thing about getting in the Word is it's not just changing my mind. It's actually, I'm, I'm growing closer to Jesus. We started this class before I even started recording with the, kind of joking a little bit about online versus in-person church. Um, and I, I didn't get into it because I was going to get into it here a little bit. Anything that I say, any teaching that I give about the Bible, you can listen to on a podcast in your car, whatever, right? Whatever. But there's something about us as people coming together and singing, and being together. Like there's something life-giving because God's presence is with us. And I'm not saying you have to come into it you know, a physical building like this to do that. Um, you can turn on music in your car or just turn off the music. Like there's different ways, but there is something experiential about being with God, about knowing his presence. Um, and there's also something mental, something in my mind about obeying him. I would say when I choose to take small steps, even if they're difficult, I know he's calling me to it. I'm actually staying in step with the spirit. Um, when I choose to just spend time in prayer and just be near him, listen to him, I'm staying in step with the Spirit. When I'm acknowledging that he's there, which is such a huge thing, just acknowledging, like, oh yeah, God is living in me. God is here. God is with me. Like, that, that brings about changes. And so all this stuff is connected, I think. Um, I think I might do, when we first started Rise to Life, we had a second follow-up class that walked more closely with spiritual disciplines. And uh, one of my friends, Matt Heinrich, he taught that. And I asked him if he'd uh, maybe want to do a podcast with me, just looking at some of the things that we can do to stay in the spirit. And maybe I'll throw that out there uh, in the next few months or so. But um, again, I, I apologize just for the fact that in many ways, this class is a theology, high level philosophy kind of thing. I would love to like spend time getting deeper in this. But let me just end by saying this. Every Sunday, hopefully, hopefully, um, there are people even here at Rice City who want to 
talk about ways that they've found they stay in step with the Spirit. They talk about different ways. And so, I mean, I think even some ways this morning, in a weird way, like even hearing uh, Dan talk about things about money, like decision-making, choices, like all of these are small things that are connected to. But really, saying something the Spirit is, is a choice for you to seek God, to spend time with Him, to open yourself up to Him, to listen to Him, um, to just sometimes get alone and, and say, God, I'm here, I'm with you. Um, I do that with a journal and my Bible and, and my AirPods, <laughs> uh, but everyone has their own thing. Um, <clears throat> but the most growth I've had is not, again, I've said before, it doesn't come from someone teaching you something. It came from the Spirit of God moving in you. And that's what you're made for. You're made for his presence in your life. And that's what brings about the greatest change in your life. And so we rise to life by making him our first priority, letting his word change our mind, and letting his spirit change who we are inside our hearts. And that's what brings about change. Um, it brings about the life that we're created for. So, um, yeah, as I mentioned, um, I might do something like this, spiritual disciplines, practices and things. Maybe look for that in the next coming months. Might do that with Matt. Um, but it's one minute to eight. So, uh, But all that being said, we are called to rise to life through him. Um, but before we end, 10 seconds. Um, the thing about waking up and rising to life is that if you stop there, you have a huge, huge problem. You absolutely cannot stop there because it will give you the faulty impression that Christianity is ultimately just about you. And it's not. Like, you're part of it, but it's not just about you. And so at Rise City, we don't say, wake up to Jesus and rise to life. All right, go have a good life. <laughs> we say, wake up to Jesus, what he's calling you to, begin to live it through the power of the Holy Spirit and renewed mind. And in doing so, just like the Jewish people were always supposed to shine like stars to the world around them, so you and I are called to shine to others. At the heartbeat of Christianity is not just you standing by yourself. It's you standing with other people and other nations, calling the world back to Jesus to make it all what he's meant it to be. So I want to come back next week. I want to talk about how this all comes together. The things that he actually ends up calling us to. The things the Spirit leads us to. The things that Jesus challenges our thinking with are almost always in relation to how we are called to be a light to the world and be a different kind of human being in the way we treat each other. So hopefully you come back next week. If not, I'll record it and listen to it. Uh, either way, uh, it'll be there. So uh, that's it, guys. Thanks so much. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next Sunday.